Spirit, I pray that, um, I pray that, I pray that your word would cut right to the heart, Lord God, of, of things in people's lives today, that we might actually encounter you as we hear from you together. Amen. Well, this story for me, the feeding of the 5,000, always reminds me of uh, when I was first dating Claire, my, my wife of now 14 years, this Wednesday. I haven't forgotten Claire, by the way. I know it's our anniversary this week. And, um, and so when we started, we, we started going out with one another. I was a student. I was studying graphic design. And uh, Claire was a student as well. And she was living at home, and I was living with two other dirty blokes. And we shared a house, and nobody ever did the washing up or anything like that. And so the offer of a meal around Claire's family house was uh, always accepted by me. And I would regularly turn up there probably at least five or six times a week for, for dinner. And um, it didn't matter when I turned up, they always made space for me at the table. And what's unique, I think, about Claire's family is the size of it. So Claire has got uh, two brothers and two sisters. So there was always seven of them eating together. And then there would be me, which would be eight. And then there was other people that would just turn up randomly. It was like the waifs and strays of Bromley would turn up to uh, Tim and Leslie, that's Claire's parents' house. And so we'd be kind of eating there, getting together, and they'd be serving out all the food. And no matter what it was, there was always just enough. Like, you would always have just enough for a plate of food. Um, and I then got nicknamed Barney the Bucket afterwards, because <laughs> what happened was is that anything that got left over from other people, I then got as well. So I always went away receiving a double portion, because everybody had a little bit left over. And so this story kind of always reminds me, the story that we're reading today reminds me of my own kind of story and my own background, because it reminds me of a time when... Uh, there was this sort of sharing out of food. But there's a real difference in this story. And the thing is, with this story, is that there's a miraculous provision of food. It's not just that uh, what happens, we'll read it in a minute, it's not just that they, they have just enough to get by, or that the food that they have is spread out evenly. It's that God does an amazing miracle. So let's read it together. So it's Luke chapter 9, and it's uh, from verse 10. So Luke chapter 9, verse 10. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them with them, he took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. And when the crowds found out about it, they followed him and welcomed them. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed to be cured. The day was drawing to a close and so the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and to get provisions for we are here in a deserted place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we've no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go out and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so and made them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he blessed them and broke them and gave it to the disciples and set it before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. What was left over was gathered up 12 basketfuls Full of broken pieces. So here's our story for today. Now, this story is a famous story, and it's a unique story in the New Testament. It's the only miracle that is written about in each of the four Gospels. Did you know that? So the three synoptic Gospels, similar, synoptic means similar or same as or looks the same. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all, all account for this as well. And, and in those three Gospels, there's lots of similarities. They, they chart similar stories. And then you get John, and John's written much later. It's written at the end of, 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 of John, John's life. And he recounts this story as well. There's something significant, I would therefore say, about this story, about this particular miracle that we should be considering. It's important to us. And I think whenever you read a story, it's important to get some context to it. 
It's, it's, it's a dangerous thing to read your Bible the way that the Bible app teaches you how to read it sometimes, right? Which gives you a verse of the day. And you'll read the verse and go, okay, that's, that's everything there is to it. Actually, it's really important that when we read Scripture, what we do is we get some context around it as well, particularly if we want to understand it more fully. So what's going on in this story? Well, in Luke's Gospel, Luke presents this story at the end of a series of different stories. So throughout Luke 8, you have a revelation, a growing revelation of how much authority Jesus has. So if you go back to Luke 8 for a second, what you'll see is that there's a growing sense of the authority that Jesus has got over different things. So let me give you a few examples. So verse 22 in Luke 8, he, he calms the storm. He demonstrates that he has authority over nature itself. Okay, that's the first one. Secondly, he has authority over evil and the demonic. So uh, we find that he uh, casts out the, the demons that are in the, 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 the Gerasene dem, de, demoniac, and he casts them into a herd of pigs. I spoke about that last year. And, and then we have the story of him uh, healing uh, the woman caught in bleeding. She's been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, we find in the story, and Jesus heals her. And then he goes off and he raises Jairus' daughter back to life. So in these four different stories, what we see is Jesus' authority is, is, is being displayed in, in bigger terms all the time. He's got authority over nature, he's got authority over evil, he's got authority over sickness, and he's got authority over death. Why is that important to our story? Well, what happens directly after that at the start of chapter 9 is Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and he tells them to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near and that they're to go and heal the sick. In other gospel accounts, in Mark and Luke, they, they add more to it and they say go out and, and cast demons out as well. So they're to go out and, and, and use the authority that Jesus has given them to go and do the works that Jesus has just been doing. And so they go out and they do it. And the start of our story is them coming back after doing that work. That's why it's important that I told you all of that. Okay, because we need to understand what's just happened before it as we come to read about it. But wider than that, if I took the whole of the Gospel of Luke and I read the whole Gospel, and I was to boil down the whole Gospel of Luke to you, I could say that it comes out with the phrase, Jesus is Lord of all. Luke demonstrates over and over and over again that Jesus is Lord of all. If that was the key message of Luke's Gospel, it would be Jesus is Lord of all. And then if you were to read Acts, which is the other book that Luke wrote, and you could sort of almost see it as like Luke the sequel, you would say that the, the, to boil down the message of Acts was that because Jesus is Lord of all, we need to tell everybody that Jesus is Lord of all. And so these two books go together in that way. It's all about Jesus' authority. And so we get to our story. And, and in this story, what happens is, is that the, the, the disciples come back to him, and Jesus does the thing that Jesus does a lot. He withdraws. You'll notice him doing that. He's not like somebody going on Twitter trying to get followers for himself. He seems to run away from the crowd more than he goes seeking one. And so he withdraws with his disciples to a place called Bethsaida. And the crowds find out about it because they want to find, they want to find Jesus. He's got something that they want. And so they chase after him. I, I've got this sort of image of them sort of like searching after him and running after him in the background. They, they, they follow him. And as they find him. He doesn't send them away. In fact, actually, the other accounts talk about the fact that he has compassion on them. He has compassion on them. He sees this crowd of people in need of him. And so he then sets about healing all those who are sick. And then the day is drawing to a close. We've had a, almost a whole day now, and Jesus is probably tired in and of himself, and the disciples come to him, and they say, Jesus, and this is, it seems like a really reasonable request, right? Because you look at the crowd, and you go, this is before Lidl and McDonald's, Okay. 
So it's not like they can just go and go over the road and find another Lidl or find a McDonald's and go and grab dinner. They have to go, they have to journey again somewhere else to either go and find somewhere to stay that's safe or they have to go and find somewhere that they can get provision, so food from. So the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, we need to send these guys away now. They are, it's getting to the end of the day. What are we going to do about it? And his response is really interesting. And I'm going to talk about this in a second. But he says, you feed them. I mean, look, what a silly thing to say. They look around. Okay, so there's, there's not just 5,000 people there. Now, this is all very sexist, but they've only counted the men. Okay, so th- there's not 5,000 people there. There's 5,000 men. So there's probably at least 10,000 if you count the women, and we've not even counted the children into that number as well. So what, we're talking maybe 12,000 at least people sitting down for this meal, and Jesus tells his disciples to feed them, and they look around. In, in, in John's gospel, we find that um, they, they say that, uh, that it's a, boy, a boy has got the food, but they say, well, look, this is all we've got. It's, it's five loaves of bread and two fish. How are we supposed to feed this many people with that? You're crazy, Jesus. What are you talking about? And then I get this kind of impression that Jesus at that point huffed. I went, oh, well, get them to sit down then. And so he, he tells them what to do. They sit down in groups of 50. And all of a sudden, this miracle takes place. He breaks the bread and he gives thanks for it and he hands it out. And as he hands it out, the miracle takes place. Now, in John's gospel, when uh, Jesus uh, turns water into wine, it's as the water is being poured out, it turns into wine. And similarly here, as the bread is passed around, it miraculously multiplies. The bread miraculously multiplies. The fish miraculously multiplies. There's a really interesting thing here as well, and you'll pick it up if you read through the rest of of, of Luke's gospel because you'll see what Jesus does here. He does it twice more. First of all, he gives thanks and breaks bread at the Last Supper. And then lastly, he gives thanks and breaks bread after the disciples work out that it's Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He breaks bread with them. And it says the same phrase. He thanks God and he breaks the bread and he gives it to them. There's a revelation taking place, therefore, as we read these verses about who Jesus is. You see, these verses, this story, teaches us that Jesus has ultimate authority. It's a continuation of everything we've read up to this point. And it it points to some other stuff about the disciples, which I'll talk about in a second. But this is a continuation of the idea that Jesus has authority over everything. Now, Luke and Mark... Both compare Jesus to Elijah and Moses. They do it a lot. And you'll see it time and time again. If you read through Luke, I talk about this to my my community group often as well. There there is a pattern in Luke. Elijah's name and Elisha's name, the the Elijah-Elisha narrative was was, was a key narrative in in Israel's thinking. And, and, And time and time again, throughout the gospel accounts, you see these great kind of heroes being compared to Jesus. So just before our story, we've got Herod's perplexity is what it's titled of in my Bible. And he's talking about um, the idea that John, so John the Baptist and Elijah, there's this comparison going on. And then Jesus uh, is uh, transfigured on the mountain and who's there? Lo and behold, it's Moses and Elijah. There's these figures that keep coming up time and time again. And um, I've actually read some scholarly work on the idea that Luke based his account on the narrative of Elisha. And if we go back in, into 2 Kings uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 42 onwards, we'll find a story that is very similar to ours. A man called, so this is verse 42 of 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from Baal Shalishar, bringing food from the first fruits to the man of God, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Elisha said, give it to the people and let them eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before 100 people? So he repeated, give it to the people and let them eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. He set it before them, they ate and had some left. 
according to the word of the Lord. So here's a story that's very similar. Elisha provides a miracle meal for this hundred people. Granted, he's got more bread to start off with, 20 loaves. And there's less people, yes. But there is a similar story here. There's also another very famous story that is very similar to our story. And that's Exodus. And God providing manna and quail for the Israelites as they journeyed through the desert. And in that account, Moses prays to God and God starts providing this daily food for the Israelites. But our story's different and it's different for this key reason. And it's different, and, and all the stories of Jesus are different from the Elisha narrative for the key reason that whenever a miracle takes place that Jesus does, he doesn't pray to somebody else to perform it. He does it himself. So when Elisha hands out the bread, he has to, it's like God is involved in it. He says the Lord will provide. He's not claiming the authority himself. But in our narrative here, Jesus claims the authority himself. This is really key for you to understand. You see, this story is teaching us that Jesus is God. This story is teaching us that Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just another prophet. He's not just a a, a good, godly man. He is God. And it's demonstrating that he has all of the authority. If you were going to look at the Gospels, what you see is you see what it looks like for God to be in charge. The Gospels demonstrate what it looks like for God to be in charge. You see, Jesus is the image of the invisible gods. And as we read the Gospels, what we find is we see what it looks like for God to be in charge. So I, I, several times recently, I've had people speak to me about how they've felt through the pandemic, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. And some non-Christians, and also some Christians who question their faith, have said, I'm not sure I can really believe that God is loving how, how can you believe in a loving God with all this suffering that goes on in the world? How, why would God allow this to happen? And my response is, well, you know, it, what, it, what is God really like? How can I trust that I know what God is like is the question. And my response is, well, go and look at Jesus. Because Jesus demonstrates what God is like. So when God sees need, he steps in. When, when Jesus sees suffering, he suffers alongside when Jesus sees pain, he, he weeps. He talks about, you know, when, when he goes to um, see Lazarus who's died, he weeps. It's the shortest verse in the Bible in John. Jesus wept. He sees Lazarus dead and he weeps. He doesn't perform the miracle straight away. He demonstrates that God empathises with us. Jesus demonstrates what it looks like for God to be in charge. God is in charge in this story. So, That's what we learn about Jesus. Jesus has all of the authority. But what do we learn about ourselves in this story? Because we can look into this story and start to look at ourselves as well. Well, I think the disciples get it wrong in this story. They've gone out on mission with Jesus. They've they've healed the sick. They've cast out demons, as we see in other accounts. And they've proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in this opportunity to continue in the mission of Jesus, what do they do? They, they, they slink back into worry about, about the need that they have. They don't step beyond it and see beyond the, uh, where they're at right then to, to, to the spiritual. And Jesus is giving them an opportunity to actually be involved in his mission and be part of the miracle, but they don't have the faith to do it. And I think sometimes we can be a little bit like that. We can forget or actively forget to uh, not put Jesus centrally in charge in our lives. We can become self-reliant and self-dependent. I I spoke to somebody recently who's been going through a really difficult time, and they said to me, not a Christian, I'm so pleased of how how well I'm doing at the moment. I might have told this story before, but it really spoke to me. I'm so proud of myself for how I'm doing. And I thought, oh my goodness, 
I can't get through a day without saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. I need you, Jesus. I need you to provide for me, Jesus. I need your, I need your authority over my life. I don't want to be self-dependent or self-reliant. I, I don't want to trust that I know I, or have all the right answers. So I think there's another thing in this story as well that we see, uh, particularly in verse 12 and 13. You see, the disciples think that they know better than Jesus. Jesus, send these people away that they might get fed and have housing. Seems reasonable on one level, but on another level, they've forgotten who they were with. So we can all be a little bit like the disciples. We can all sometimes become self-reliant or self-dependent and forget, ultimately, who is really in control, who is in charge. So what do we do with all of that then? Well, look, when, when we read Mark's account, we have this verse in Mark 6.34. When Jesus saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the crowd and, and, and he sees that they were like sheep without a shepherd. We need to be people who remember who our shepherd is. We need to be people who remember who is in charge of our lives. Don't forget who the shepherd is. Don't forget who's in control or who's in charge and who wants to be in control in your life. Jesus wants to be in control of your life. Jesus wants to have authority and you can rest in the goodness of that. And you know, in, in our hearts, it's like there's a little throne room in each of our hearts and each of our lives. We build a little throne room for ourselves. And in that throne room, almost like the Queen's throne room, you might have seen that before, there's a little seat in it and everything. In that throne room, there's a throne. And for each of us, we've got the opportunity to place whatever we want on that throne in our lives. And so for some of us, we place things like ourselves on the throne. In fact, actually, our culture kind of promotes that idea. Be self-reliant. Place yourself on the throne of your life. Be who you, who you were born to be would be the way that our culture would speak about it. Be who you are. We place ourselves on the throne of our lives. Some of us place our careers on the throne of our lives. Some of us place our family on the throne of our lives. Some of us place money or success or power on the throne of our lives. And this story demonstrates to us that actually Jesus ultimately is on the throne and he will topple all the other thrones. And we need to, if we want to follow him, place him centrally in our hearts and in our lives. You know, it's only as we do that that we'll understand and, and, and know the goodness and the benefit of living under the provision of God. You know, the people who come to Jesus, all of them are healed. All of them experiencing the shepherd's heart towards them. And they came to him wanting him to be their king. You know, we need to come to Jesus asking Jesus to be our king, asking Jesus to take authority over our lives and take that place in our hearts, on our, the throne of our lives, and say, Jesus, I want you to have all authority over me. And as we do that, we'll experience his provision and his abundant provision. You know, it's incredible in this story that at the end of it, there is 12 basketfuls of bread left over at the end. You know, some people think that those 12 basketfuls are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. That... As the miracle takes place, it demonstrates that Jesus is king over all of it and that Jesus will provide for all of it and that we're all included. We all have the opportunity to be invited to be part of his kingdom and to partake in the meal together. So as we close, where are you at with this stuff today? Where are you at? Is, is, is God your provider and sustainer? Do you come to him and say, Jesus, would you be my shepherd? Or do you, like the disciples, think, well, actually, I can be self-reliant on myself and, and not, not, not worry about, about, about things because I'm in control? Or do you say, Jesus, I just need you? Maybe today you might be watching this at home, maybe in the room, and you don't know Jesus. 
Jesus is presented in the Bible in two ways. He's either the, the, the foundation stone that you build your whole life upon, or he's the stone that you're continually tripping over. If you build your life on Jesus, you can know his authority, his provision, and you can know the abundance of his blessing over your life. If you don't build your life on Jesus, which you are welcome to do, you will continually trip over him, says the Bible, all the time. <laughs> it's, a funny, it's a funny paradox, but it's a very true one. Anyway, let's pray as we finish, shall we? Lord Jesus, I, I thank you that as we see in this miracle, we see you providing this amazing miracle for this group of people. Lord, I thank you that as you provide for it, God, that you show us your heart of abundance and your heart of blessing. But ultimately, Jesus, you show us that you are in control. And Jesus, I pray today where maybe we've uh, put ourselves on the throne in our lives again. Lord, I pray today that you would come and take your seat, your rightful seat at the centre of our lives. Lord, I pray for anybody watching this today who doesn't know you. Lord, that they might right now even say, Jesus, would you come and take your seat on the throne of my heart? Come and be my king. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as we do that, we know the abundant provision that you give over our lives. Lord, I thank you that as we do that, we know, um, we know the strength and courage that you give us. But also, Lord God, we know that you're the one who provides for all of our needs. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody at home today who might be worried or fearful this week, even about tomorrow as we, 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 we go into, into a space of, of, of starting to um, unlock all these restrictions over our lives. Jesus, I pray that if anybody's worried or fearful about that, Jesus, I thank you that you are the God who is in charge. Jesus, you're the God who's in control. And Jesus, I pray today, Lord God, where anybody's placed worry or fear on the throne in their lives, Lord Jesus, that again, that they would be able to come and place you back in your rightful place and say, Jesus, come and take your seat. So Lord, we pray today that you would come and speak over each of us. Lord, I pray for each of us this week that we would be reminded of this story. The time when you provided this amazing meal and there was some left over. The time when you demonstrated that you were in charge. And we might think sometimes we know the answers, but Lord, I thank you ultimately that you do. And so, Lord, we just give ourselves again to you this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, that's it for today. Um, thank you for joining us at home. I do hope that you can join us next week as we worship together. Don't forget to bring a picnic and a picnic blanket. Let's pray that the weather is as glorious as it is today.